I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A young boy falls prey to a vicious attacker, leaving his life hanging by a thread. He told me he couldn't see me and that he was scared. And that's when I got scared. A loving husband is struck down by the deadliest parasite on the planet. I'm thinking, my husband's dying in front of my eyes. And a marathon runner picks up a ruthless killer that eats him from the inside. I was very concerned that if we didn't have a diagnosis soon, Nathan would die. Three very different parasites, all with the same lethal strategy. They feed off their hosts, then leave them for dead. They are everywhere. They are fatal. They are... Cold-blooded killers. Worms invisible to the human eye. Insects. Thirsty for blood. Microscopic amoeba. They might look harmless, but these are some of nature's deadliest creatures. They can hijack our bodies, disable our immune systems. They are parasites. But to those infected, they are the monsters inside me. Parasites are organisms that live in or on other living organisms called hosts. Some parasites adopt a relatively benign survival strategy, living off of the host without doing too much damage. But some parasites take a much more ruthless approach. They devour their host resources, they destroy their bodies, and they don't stop until the host is dead. And when the deadliest parasites strike, the chances of survival are very slim, as one family is about to find out. September 2008. Steve and Lori Spielman live in the town of Baldwinsville, New York. I was looking for a great place to raise our kids. The thing that attracted me to Baldwinsville was it had a great winter. It was a big hockey community. Their nine-year-old son, Chris, lives and breathes ice hockey. Chris started playing ice hockey at four years old. He had a natural gift for it. Chris likes the competition, but he's a fun-loving kid. We always say, Chris loves being a kid. One morning in early autumn, the Spielmans take Chris to hockey tryouts. Chris has spent all summer working real hard to pass this travel team tryout. We go out, all the kids are lined up, waiting to take the ice. But when his turn comes, Chris isn't his usual competitive self. He was dropping his stick, and he looked like he was struggling. He was usually one of the fastest skaters, and he was coming in last in some of these drills. His mom, Lori, also spots Chris's unusual behavior. I noticed that a few times he just fell, and it just seemed very unusual for him. But I didn't, I just thought he wasn't trying his hardest. The next day, the team's roster is posted online. 
We went on the website and they listed all the team players and Chris's name was not on it. As a parent, I feel so bad. He just started crying and he said he tried his best. Chris was extremely upset. Steve and Lori encouraged Chris to put the disappointment behind him. But a few days later, when Chris comes home from school, Lori notices something strange. I was doing homework with him and I noticed that he just would daze off and the only way to get his attention was to actually get in front of him and call his name. He's having these moments where he dazes out. I have to really, really hold his hand through homework assignments. This is stuff he knows. This is stuff that he could have done in 10 minutes because he'd be so eager to go outside and play. Now I'm helping him figure out what two times five is. He's starting to get frustrated like he just really doesn't know. A light bulb went off in my mind that maybe something's not right here. By the end of the week, the Spielmans realized that lack of concentration is the least of Chris's problems. It's Friday night. It's pizza night. We're sitting here having dinner as a family. Everything seems normal. Chris kind of gets up from the table and says, I'm not hungry, which is odd because he's usually good for three slices of pizza. He goes and onto the couch in front of the TV. Next thing I know, he's sleeping. I looked at my wife and I said, he must be sick. We take his temperature, it was 103. He always tended to get high fevers. He's always had ear infections. We're hoping it would just go away. But on Wednesday night, just before bedtime, there is an alarming development. Chris is laying on the couch and it's getting late. My husband picks Chris up and Chris just started freaking out. He's yelling hysterically for me to put him down. He does not want to be touched. He just keeps yelling at me, Dad, don't touch me, don't touch me, put me down. He's got a hockey player mentality. Nothing hurts him. I've never been so scared in my life. It is clear something is wrong. Startled, Steve races Chris to the emergency room. When we're in the emergency room, the doctors are looking at Chris and they go through all the standard testing, blood tests and, and everything else. I could see the look on the doctor's face now, and obviously I know something's wrong. The test on Chris's spinal fluid has come back abnormal, indicating that there could be something wrong with Chris's brain. Chris is put in the care of pediatric neurologist, Dr. Kevin Ragosta. His behavior was such that I thought that it could be a virus infection. If you don't treat them early and aggressively, they can destroy your brain. Dr. Ragosta prescribes an antiviral medication. But the mysterious illness only gets worse. As the night goes by and I'm by his side, he starts shaking. His body starts tremoring, and his eyes are starting to roll in opposite circles from each other, and they actually start kind of going up in his head. And he told me he couldn't see me and that he was scared, and that's when I got scared. Dr. Ragosta rushes him to the ICU. He started having seizures, and his level of consciousness became clearly compromised. 
MRIs reveal that Chris is suffering from encephalitis, a dangerous swelling of the brain, often caused by an infection. His brain was clearly inflamed. When the body is attacked by a foreign invader, it sends immune cells to the infected area, causing inflammation. Normally, this helps the body heal, but inflammation in the brain can be fatal. As the brain tissue swells, it presses against the skull, killing the brain's own cells. If enough cells die, the brain stops functioning and the victim dies. He was regressing instead of progressing. And then you reach a point and said, okay, he doesn't have something that we can actively treat with antibiotics or antiviruses. Chris is getting worse by the hour. His awareness of the environment just started to become less and less and less. And a boy that was just talking to you a day or two earlier now doesn't even seem to know your existence. And they said the next thing that was going to happen was he wasn't going to be able to breathe on his own. And they said that to protect his airways, they were going to need to induce him in a coma and intubate him. At this point, I don't know what to think. It's the scariest thing I've ever went through. My husband and I just are still hoping everything's just going to turn out OK. The doctors connect Chris to a ventilator, and within minutes, he slips into a coma. I was shocked and scared, and I asked the doctor, what are the chances of him coming out of this? I was given a you know, variety of, it, it could be a day, it could be weeks, or it could be years, or it could be never. My wife's there with me, both of us break down crying, and uh, we're asking out loud, why would this happen to a nine-year-old boy? Chris may never wake up again. He was just lapsing into a deeper and deeper coma. That can be a bottomless pit. Steve and Lori Spielman have spent the last six days in the hospital fighting to save their nine-year-old son Chris's life. His brain is so swollen that doctors have put Chris in a temporary coma to protect him. But Chris is so sick that the doctors are afraid he may never wake up. He was just lapsing into a deeper and deeper coma. That can be a bottomless pit. The doctors still have no idea what he's causing Chris's brain to swell. I didn't know what it was. We knew Chris was worsening. The MRI continued to show evidence of brain inflammation. With Chris's life in the balance, Dr. Ragosta considers one final treatment, steroids. Steroids is one of those two-edged swords. Steroids can reduce the inflammation by inhibiting the body's immune response. But in doing so, they might give whatever is attacking Chris free reign and make the infection even worse. The doctors are very clear that this was experimental and that there wasn't enough in the scientific literature to prove that this would work or not work and we decided to go for it. Dr. Ragosta administers the steroids, and he and the Spielmans wait anxiously. When he was started on the steroids, he started realizing that his response was a little bit better. He was starting to yawn. Um, now that might seem, 
you know, very minuscule, but I haven't seen his face move in 17 days, and now he was yawning. Encouraged by Chris's responses, Dr. Agosta decides to test his ability to breathe on his own. They take the ventilator out of Christopher, and everything's fine. He's breathing well on his own. After a month in a coma, Chris finally wakes up. Eventually, Chris opens his eyes. He's not looking at you. He just kind of is staring into space, but we're becoming a little more hopeful. But the doctors are cautious. They still don't know what has brought Chris to the brink of death. There's always concern when you don't know what's going on that it could flare back up. Worried that Chris could relapse at any time, and still without any idea what has caused the illness, Dr. Ragosta turns to infectious disease expert, Dr. Leonard Weiner. Dr. Weiner and his team pour over Chris's medical records. It's like a detective story. And in Chris's case, we began to look for more and more unusual causes that might account for his illness, such as fungus or bacteria, such as tuberculosis. Then one evening, Chris's mother, Lori, receives an unexpected call. We get a phone call from the hospital, and it's the infectious disease doctor. They tell us, hey, um, we've got some news for you. A test finally came back, positive. And I'm like, okay, good, you know, what, what is it? They told us that Chris tested positive for acanthamoeba. The acanthamoeba is a single-celled organism that typically feeds on bacteria and yeast. But if given the opportunity to infect a human host, it becomes a voracious parasite. The acanthamoeba is normally a free-living organism. That means it can live without a host. Nevertheless, if it does find its way inside a human host, it will wreak havoc, and that can be deadly. The acanthamoeba enters the body through the skin or up the nose and travels through the central nervous system to the brain. There, it devours brain cells. After feeding, the parasite divides rapidly, causing sudden and massive inflammation. It creates a very destructive, inflammatory response within the brain itself, and that is almost always fatal. The doctors don't know how Chris was able to survive, or if the parasite is still hiding in his brain. The idea of a parasite in him is horrific. Is he gonna get sick again? I'm thinking, is this still in him? The doctors were very upfront and honest, and, and there was really nothing they could tell us for sure. Is the parasite that nearly killed Chris Spielman about to launch an even more vicious assault on his brain? Honestly, I, w- I was fearing the worst. Nine-year-old Chris Spielman is a victim of the deadly brain-eating parasite, acanthamoeba. After being treated with steroids, he has made a partial recovery. But his parents are terrified that the parasite might still be lurking somewhere in his brain. Now we're looking at Chris, and we don't know what the future was going to hold for him. My wife and I both feared that Chris's recovery maybe wasn't a recovery at all. 
There's not a lot of information out there about how survivors do. Is he going to continue to get better? What's he going to look like a week, a month from now? The real way that one knows what's going to happen is to wait. While the doctors wait to see if the acanthamoeba returns, they begin to look at how Chris might have contracted such a ruthless parasite. I do know that weeks before Chris's illness, we were at a party where there was a pond and Chris and all his friends were playing by the pond and Chris found a hockey puck that he scooped up out of the water. Acanthamoeba are very common in the environment. They're found in all kinds of places like swimming pools, ponds, inside air conditioning units. People are exposed to acanthamoeba all the time. Normally, that's not a problem because the immune system can stop acanthamoeba before it takes hold in the body. But in Chris's case, the parasite somehow sidestepped his immune system and attacked his brain. Doctors continue to monitor Chris, still fearing that the killer amoeba might still be alive in his system. But after six weeks of rehab, Chris regains his speech, muscle control, and neurological function. Chris told me that he wanted to get better because his hockey team had a tournament coming up and he wanted to make the tournament. While there is no way for the doctors to prove that the acanthamoeba is dead, Chris's steady recovery is a sign his immune system has fought off the parasite for good. So now it's easy to say, you know, Chris's recovery is essentially complete. The doctors assured us that this acanthamoeba is not going to return. By January, Chris is not only back on his feet, but back on the ice. Chris approached everything like the gutsy little kid that he is. They told me I got better because I was a tough kid. I'm happy that I'm able to play hockey the stuff I want and play with my friends. When I grow up, I want to be a professional hockey player. No one knows exactly how Chris beat the parasite, but they do know that he's lucky to be alive. If we would have known early on that he had a canthamoeba, that his death sentence might have been written prematurely. The acanthamoeba is everywhere, so avoiding exposure to the parasite is nearly impossible. While the parasite is deadly, cases of acanthamoeba infection are extremely rare in the United States. The reason acanthamoeba is such a deadly parasite is that it attacks the brain. But the deadliest parasite on the planet has a different approach. It attacks the blood, as one computer programmer is about to learn firsthand. 2007. Software designer Michael Bell and his wife Maria live in the quiet town of Chesterfield, Virginia. For fun, we like to travel. We do physical fitness and sports. In his free time, Michael is an avid cyclist. He can sometimes go out for 50-mile bike rides. We both just enjoy taking care of ourselves and feeling great. But Michael's energetic routine is about to come to a screeching halt. One evening in June... Michael and Maria go out for a romantic meal. We went out to a nice seafood restaurant. While eating dinner, I started to get an upset stomach and I wasn't sure what was going on. My head started pounding and I didn't really finish my meal. I thought maybe it could be food poisoning, maybe some kind of flu, 
um, but I wasn't quite sure. We leave the restaurant and go home. The next morning, the symptoms continued, you know, headache and stomach ache and achiness, and I didn't seem to improve. Michael stays home from work, hoping the symptoms will go away with some rest. But after a few days in bed, Michael still has a headache and stomach ache. Mike is a very strong kind of guy. He doesn't give in to colds or flus or anything like that. But after a few days, he decides that it's time to go to the doctor. So I went to a clinic to see if there was anything wrong. They listened to my breathing, checked for congestion, they checked my blood pressure, and then give me a simple pain medication and send me on my way. They just confirmed what we thought. They say that he has a virus. But whatever is causing Michael's symptoms is much more serious than just a virus. Michael stays in bed for the rest of the week. But on Friday, Maria must leave town on important business. I had a lot of traveling that I was doing, and I'm still trying to keep an eye on Mike just to make sure that he's okay. But, you know, still we're thinking, it just has a virus. Only a few hours after Maria departs, Michael takes a turn for the worse. I wake up and I had a low-grade fever. It just felt like a fluish type of feeling. The next thing I remember, the pounding in my head. It's the worst headache Michael has ever had. It felt like I had a vice on my whole skull and crushing my head in. With Maria still away on business, Michael calls his mom and tells her about the pounding in his head. My mom comes over and realizes that there may be something seriously wrong with me. Concerned for her son, Michael's mom rushes him to the emergency room. I tell the doctor that I had a pounding headache, dizziness, stomach ache, and that I thought something could really be wrong. So he did a blood test to determine what was wrong. Later that night, Maria gets an alarming message. And I get this voicemail that his mom has now taken him to the hospital. Maria races to the hospital. When she arrives, she's stunned by what she sees. As I walk into the ER, it's shocking to see my husband laying in fetal position. I just remember being really scared. Finally, the doctor returns with the test results. Michael has malaria. I was very shocked to get the diagnosis of malaria. I'm thinking, what? Who gets malaria? Malaria is the deadliest parasitic disease on the planet. It causes nearly a million deaths a year. The disease is caused by a single-celled parasite called plasmodium. The malaria parasite invades the body's red blood cells, reproducing inside them until they explode and die. The dead blood cells then form clumps that block the body's blood vessels, starving its organs and tissues of oxygen, eventually killing them. But how did the world's deadliest parasite get inside Michael? The answer lies in its life cycle. Malaria begins in the gut of a mosquito. When an infected mosquito bites a host, the parasites travel from the insect's saliva into the host's bloodstream. The parasites reproduce in the host's blood and internal organs. When an uninfected mosquito bites an infected host, the life cycle is complete. 
Infected mosquitoes thrive in warm, often tropical locations. Right away, Maria knows where Michael came in contact with the parasite. For our 20th anniversary, we were at this resort in the Dominican Republic for a week. They tell us that where we were vacationing is known for malaria. Michael is admitted to the ICU, where doctors give him an anti-malarial drug to stop the spread of the parasite. But on the night of July 4th, Michael's condition takes a frightening turn. Suddenly, Mike sits up in bed, and he starts speaking this computer language. He's a software developer, so I recognize what he's saying is what he writes. As he's sitting up in bed, and he's speaking this garbly gook, I grab his face and look in his eyes. Mike, do you know who I am? Do you know where you are? Michael seems to have lost control of his mind. It was one of the scariest things that I had ever witnessed. And now, inside the monster. Acanthamoeba are commonly found in which of the following environments? A, swimming pools. B, air conditioning units. C, raw sewage. D, all of the above. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Acanthamoeba are commonly found in D, all of the above. After a week of crippling symptoms, software designer Michael Bell has been diagnosed with the parasitic disease malaria. Doctors treat him with anti-malarial drugs, but to no avail. And now there is a bizarre new symptom. Michael has started speaking in nonsensical computer code. His wife Maria fears her husband may have lost his mind. I have no idea what is going on. I am extremely scared. I'm thinking my husband is going to die. The ICU team calls an infectious disease specialist, Dr. Michael Edmond. When he takes a sample of Michael's blood, he makes a shocking discovery. 23% of his red blood cells had parasites inside of them. And that's a very high percentage of red blood cells to be infected. That's 23 times more than he had only a week earlier. So here we have a smear from Mike's blood. These little purple dots, every one of those is a malaria parasite. We can often sit at the microscope for 30 minutes just to find a single parasite. This is the most severe case of malaria that I've seen in my career. 
If we were to take a teaspoon of his blood, in that teaspoon of blood, that would be five billion parasites. For Michael, the news gets even worse. His digestive system has been so badly impaired by the parasite, it can't absorb the medication. With no drugs to stop them, the parasites have spread to the blood vessels that supply the brain. The reason Mike is speaking computer code is because now the malaria has gone to his brain. To save Michael's life, the doctors must give him huge doses of the medicine intravenously. As this is happening, I have no idea what is going on. I'm thinking my husband's dying in front of my eyes. I have three IVs in my arm feeding me intravenously 24 hours a day. After eight days on the IV drugs, Michael's condition starts to improve. He progressively got better. As his parasite numbers came down in his blood, his symptoms all started to improve. He's lucid. He's no longer speaking in computer code. He is feeling much better. A few days later, Michael is discharged from the hospital. But little does he know, his ordeal is far from over. Two weeks after returning home, Maria has another business trip. Michael volunteers to drop her off at the airport. We get to the airport, and Mike pulls up to where I need to get out, and he says a very odd sentence to me. I knew that something wasn't right. I can't remember the exact words, but the words were out of order. Suddenly, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. At this point, I don't know what to think. I was told I was cured of malaria. Now I'm having some other symptoms. Maria cuts short her business trip. And Michael races back to the hospital. I was called by the emergency room to let me know that Mike had arrived. And it was a very different person that I had seen just the day before in my clinic. It was very unsettling. Has the malaria come back? Or is it something even worse? Michael Bell is recovering from a near-fatal bout of malaria. His doctors believe they've killed the parasite. But two weeks after leaving the hospital, Michael is struck by a sudden bout of dizziness and disorientation. I'm having more dizziness, um, trouble with my motor skills. I can't seem to form a sentence, even though in my head I feel like I can say the words that they're not coming out properly. That's probably the, the most frightening thing. He seemed to be at the level of about a two or three-year-old. I was petrified that this was the new Mike. This is not the normal course of someone who's recovering um, from malaria. Dr. Edmund orders a new round of malaria tests, but they all come back negative. There were no parasites in his blood. Something is still wrong with Michael's brain, but if it isn't malaria, what could it be? It seemed to me that something else must be going on. Perplexed, he decides to cross-reference Michael's symptoms with a database of malaria research. What he uncovers is totally unexpected a rare condition called post-malarial neurological syndrome. What you see is mostly problems with cognition, with thinking and speaking. 
The cause of this syndrome remains unknown. So it's thought to be some type of a immunologic phenomenon that occurs after the infection has cleared. There is no treatment for postmalarial neurological syndrome. The only course of action is to wait for the symptoms to subside on their own. There is really nothing that could be done except to wait. Within just a few days, Mike undergoes a dramatic transformation. He started to be able to construct sentences. And when that happened, I felt like we had probably turned the corner. By the fifth day, Dr. Edmund is confident his hunch has paid off. I had certainly never heard of the post-malaria neurologic syndrome. It's not even in any of our textbooks because it's so unusual. And in fact, he's the first case ever uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Today, Michael is fully recovered and back to leading a healthy, active life. Ever since that last hospital stay, things have been great. I think Mike is healthier now than he's ever been in his entire life. I guess I've tried to enjoy life a little more than than I would have otherwise, you know, and make the best of it. Michael Bell beat tremendous odds when he recovered from a parasitic infection that kills millions. If a person's diagnosed in time and receives proper treatment, it's very possible to survive malaria. It's also preventable. When traveling in affected areas, taking anti-malaria drugs and sleeping under an insecticide-treated net dramatically reduce the risk of infection. Malaria is deadly because it destroys red blood cells and that prevents the body from getting oxygen to its organs. But other parasites attack the body's organs directly, as one athlete will soon discover. Fall 2006, Dorchester, Massachusetts. Web analyst Nathan Yang is an avid long-distance runner. I started running six or seven years ago. After a while, I was thinking about running a marathon. The marathon really gives me a goal to shoot for. It's much easier to actually exercise when you have a goal. But Nathan is about to encounter a challenge unlike any he's ever faced. One weekend in October, he goes to visit his cousin in New York. We were hanging around in Washington Park. And then pretty soon after that, I decided to go for one of my training runs. And afterwards, I remember feeling extremely tired. A lot more tired than usual. And at the time, I don't really think anything about it. At the end of the weekend, Nathan returns home to Boston. Probably the next night, after coming back from New York, I start feeling a little bit of a low fever. I just thought it was, you know, a little bit of a flu or cold or something. Nathan assumes the symptoms will go away on their own. I don't really think much about it at the time. So I go back to work, I resume my usual life. But the symptoms actually don't go away, they continue. Accustomed to being in top physical shape, Nathan is not used to feeling so unwell. I never really had anything wrong with me. You know, never really had a hospital stay or anything like that, never broken a bone. Concerned that his performance in the marathon might be affected, Nathan makes an appointment to see his doctor. By this time, it's about three weeks before the race, so I go see the doctor just to make sure that there's nothing really wrong. Take my blood pressure, they examine me. It's pretty much just a general exam. After looking Nathan over, the doctor arrives at a diagnosis. 
So the doctor thinks that it's either a flu virus or some other type of virus that's just taking a little longer to go away. Nathan decides to take a break from training in order to recover in time for the race. But late one night, he wakes up to a disturbing new symptom. I wake up, you know, in the middle of the night and my clothes are soaked. I don't think I've ever had night sweats like this. It is pretty bad. Concerned that he might have something more than the flu, Nathan returns to his primary care physician. So the doctor thinks that one of the possibilities for explaining these symptoms was that maybe I had a tick-borne illness. At the time, that actually seemed pretty reasonable. Ticks are blood-sucking arachnids common in New England. They can transmit Lyme disease and a deadly parasitic infection called babesiosis. The doctor runs a battery of tests on Nathan's blood. The results will not be known for several days. And in the meantime, my symptoms just continue to get worse and worse. In fact, Nathan is so sick, he's barely able to get out of bed. Two weeks after he first became ill, he is forced to make a difficult decision. I have decided that I probably would not run the race. That's upsetting because I had been training for three months, but it's just a race. <laughs> then Nathan gets a call from his doctor with some frustrating news. The results from the labs that he had, all the things that he had run were all negative. Whatever's making Nathan so sick remains a mystery. So at this point, he decided to refer me to an infectious disease specialist. That specialist is Dr. Bruce DeZuby, a hematologist at Beth Israel Medical Center. I brought Nathan in, and before me was indeed a young man who just looked ill. Dr. DeZuby orders a CAT scan of Nathan's vital organs. All appear normal, except for one, the spleen. One of the spleen's primary functions is to filter and store red and white blood cells. A normal patient's spleen is maybe four to five inches. His spleen was enormous. It was the size of a baby. An enlarged spleen can be life-threatening. If the spleen ruptures, a patient could die. And I was very concerned that that spleen was just going to burst. Dr. DeZuby must find out what is making Nathan's spleen five times its normal size. He tests Nathan for lymphoma and a variety of other deadly diseases. We ended up sending off 50 blood tests, and everyone came back negative. And that's when I said, oh my god, we really got a problem here. I was very concerned that if we didn't have a diagnosis soon, Nathan would die. Marathon runner Nathan Yang has been struck down by a mysterious illness. Plagued by fevers and fatigue, he has gone from being an elite athlete to a frail shell of himself in just a few months. My symptoms just continue to get worse and worse. It's probably one of the worst things that I've ever had. Now his doctor has discovered a terrifying new symptom. His spleen has swollen to five times its normal size. I was very concerned that if we didn't have a diagnosis soon, Nathan would die. 
no idea what is causing Nathan's spleen to swell, Dr. Dizubi is left with one final option. Remove the spleen altogether. One can live a totally normal life without a spleen. However, taking the spleen out is often a last resort. Dr. Dizubi schedules Nathan for surgery to have his spleen taken out. But before the operation can go ahead, the doctors do one final series of blood tests. They take my blood to do all sorts of blood work. They wanted to make sure that we exhaust all other avenues in infectious disease before um, actually having my spleen taken out. 48 hours before the operation, the results come back. I got a call that just totally knocked my socks off. I got a call that his Leishmaniasis test was positive. Leishmaniasis is a disease caused by the protozoan parasite Leishmania. When it gets inside the host, it feeds directly on the vital organs. The Leishmania parasite hijacks the body's immune system by attacking the body's own defense cells. The parasite devours them from the inside and then uses them to travel through the body. When the parasite reaches the liver or the spleen, where immune cells are made, it gorges itself, paralyzing the body's defenses. It's concerning imagining that there's a parasite inside your body. The Leishmania parasite is destroying Nathan's spleen. Now that parasite takes up residence into the spleen, and it causes the spleen to grow and grow as the parasites grow and grow and grow. Dr. Dasubi must kill the parasites before Nathan's spleen ruptures and kills him. He floods Nathan's body with heavy doses of powerful antibiotics. I had to be admitted to the hospital for five days, and they gave me a dose of the drug every day. Dr. Dasubi and Nathan can only wait to see if the drugs will work. But one pressing question still remains. How did a Leishmania parasite get inside Nathan? The Leishmania parasite is spread by a tiny blood-sucking insect about a third the size of a mosquito called a sandfly. When an infected sandfly bites a human, the parasite enters the new host's blood. Once in the blood, the parasite feeds on white blood cells, reproducing and spreading throughout the body. When an uninfected sandfly bites an infected human host, the life cycle is complete. The Leishmania parasite is common in places like Asia, Latin America, and Southern Europe. But cases in the U.S. are extremely rare. The doctors ask Nathan about his recent travels. I was on vacation in Greece with a friend of mine. We did some hiking in the mountains and in the gorges. The doctors think that it was on this trip to Greece that Nathan became infected. After two days of treatment, Nathan starts to feel an extraordinary change. All of a sudden, I could tell that a lot of my symptoms were starting to go away. I'm feeling really, really relieved. <laughs> Finally, by the end of the week, Nathan is parasite-free, and his spleen has shrunk back to normal size. Most of my symptoms were either gone or so minor now that they weren't really noticeable. Within a few weeks of being released from the hospital, Nathan is able to return to his old routine. I started exercising again and resuming all the things that I've been doing before I started getting sick. Today, Nathan is fully recovered. But without treatment, victims of leishmaniasis have little chance of survival. 
Leishmaniasis doesn't stop with the spleen. It will spread to new organs until it finally kills its host. If this disease isn't treated, the death rate is nearly 100%. There are no vaccines that protect against the Leishmania parasite. Travelers to affected areas should guard against being bitten by sand flies by using insect repellent and keeping the skin covered whenever possible. Because parasites live inside or on their hosts, it might seem counterproductive for them to kill their source of food and shelter. But the fact is, once a parasite completes its life cycle, the host becomes irrelevant. Some parasites leave their hosts relatively unscathed, and others are cold-blooded killers. For more disgusting parasites and tips on how to avoid them, visit our website, animalplanet.com slash monstersinsideme.